Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the uh, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Uh, hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we highlight one of the 12-step programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience and show us that shared experience saved lives. Today, we're going to be talking about recovering from the effects of alcoholism, both individually and someone else's. And I've got two guests, uh, one from Al-Anon Family Groups and one from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to welcome Emily from Al-Anon and Dean from AA to the 3CR studio this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Bill. Hey, how are you going, Bill? Good. So our special focus for this program is the upcoming uh, national gathering of AA members with less than 10 years recovery. It's called Aussie Par, and it's in Melbourne over this weekend. But first we'll talk about the disease of alcoholism, um, and how it affects the sufferer, the alcoholic, and how it affects their family. Because um, a lot of people don't realise that if someone else is drinking in your family, then everybody's getting affected. And I think that's... Um, people don't realise the, the profound effect that drinking can have on a family. So um, I'll start with you, Emily. So what's it like to grow up in a family that has a problem drinker? Um, <clears throat> I guess my experience growing up in a home where there was a problem drinker was um, a lot of, like, contestation and argument, you know. Um, Dad could never really do anything right. Um, if know. he did anything at all. <laughs> um, and if he did anything at all, yeah. it was never the right kinds of things. Um, and there was a lot of anxiety around what you know whether dad was at the pub my father was a is um a really social bar drinker and his presence at the pub and not in the family home was a source of deep uh concern for my mum and the toxicity of that interaction interaction. um you know i I, (laughs) they did a lot of um cool stuff together um, and they, I think they achieved a lot, but it was always overshadowed by this sort of relationship of nagging and then not taking responsibility on the other hand. You know, um, I was just too much absence and on one hand and then, like, too much involvement on the other hand. So yeah. that was the yeah. dynamic. Yeah. And your mum's had alcoholism in her family as well. Yeah, well, that's... I've learned since I've been in the Al-Anon program that's actually really, really common for, um, you know, my mum married a problem drinker and she was raised by problem drinkers. Um, And how did that influence her? um, I love my mum, but when I came into Al-Anon, I believed that she was insane. Um, And I think there is an insanity that is caused when you um, grow up around around drinkers and for my mum that and in me that's sort of manifested as um uh, insecurity manipulation mothering the management you know 
being overly interested in other people's stuff, what they're doing, what they're saying. Um, and also kind of with my mum, I feel like she feels like she's a victim a lot of other people's stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, so over to you, uh, Dean. So you grew up in a very different family. Yeah. So what was it like for you growing up? Yeah, growing up was uh, was great. Um, you know, I was born in the southeast suburbs in Mentone and, you know, I was the first uh, child that my parents had out of three and it was it was awesome. I remember, yeah, just great memories. My parents always worked really hard. They're, they're not alcoholics uh, like I am. And, um, yeah, they just provided a lot of great opportunities. Mum and Dad were, were always there in my life, uh, They'd take me down to, you know, the park. They'd be involved all the way from kindergarten stuff, primary school, sports as I got older. And they just wanted the best life for me. You know, my dad would always say, you know, when he had me, he said, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure Dean has the best opportunities in life. It was it was great, you know. Um, so, and how did, um, so they didn't have any alcoholism in their families? As far as I know, like I've, I've asked them, um, you know, my background is Greek and I've asked my parents and my grandparents uh, to, to see if, you know, maybe, you know, my great-grandparents or, or any of their siblings back in Greece or relatives exhibit, you know, uncontrollable drinking. But as far as I can tell, like no one, no one really thinks anyone in the family has really gotten, yeah, Got out of control. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it was a bit, I felt like a bit. Like the only black sheep in the family. <laughs> There's usually only one. <laughs> Would have been nice to have another one. <laughs> um, so growing up then, going to school, did you have any difficulties at school? Yeah, uh, you know, I think you know, primary school was, was fine. I mean, you know, it's not the most challenging environment academically, I think. So, you know, I, I got through that, you know, fine. I had lots of friends socially. It was, it was a lot of fun. I was very involved. High school was really good too. When I got there, uh, you know, year seven, year eight, um, but about maybe halfway through year eight, leading into year nine, um, I was still very, you know, involved in in sport. Had a really great social life, close friends, family was, you know, still great. But I think internally, I just started to feel sort of approaching pressures of life. You know, my mind would start to wander towards year twelve, and you know, how am I going to go and Am I going to be successful at life once I leave? What's you know? I start thinking about responsibilities that come, like you know, a career and houses and you know stuff that you know a fifteen-year-old probably shouldn't be worrying too much about. You know what I mean? But it just yeah, it just started. Just started. Uh, yeah. yeah, manifest. Yeah. Um, so, uh, t- did you have problems with friends? Were you know? Did you express these sort of uh, concerns to your friends or? Yeah, no, not to my memory. No, like you know. I was I was playing football and and uh, and basketball at the time and and I just you know and I'd see my my teammates we all go, went to the same school we we're all very close in each other's lives but we would never really talk about we talk about sport and video games and it would always be sort of the lingering moments of my day usually at night thinking about the next day and and then my mind would wander off and before getting to bed. Usually around exam times at schools, or you know, year nine, my, my school started doing taking us through sort of pre- preparation exams for the more serious years, and yep. I just used to think, God, oh, I had this feeling like I know it's coming, and I don't think I'm going to do well, and yep. I don't know why I had that feeling. Yeah, 
Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so back to you, Emily. So what was what was school like for you? Were you did you fit in? Sanctuary. <laughs> I loved school. Um, and actually, you know, on reflection and being in Al-Anon has caused me to do quite a formal reflection over my attitudes and experiences in life um, through the fourth step. My childhood was, like, my schooling years were actually really blissful. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a really small country school, you know, 30 kids um, from kindergarten to year six. And then in high school, I was involved in everything. I was always someone who wanted to be, you know, in things. Um, so I did choir and rock Sedford and all the <laughs> theatre and emceed everything that ever happened. And, um, you know, I was arts captain. And I did very well academically. Um, I was a high achiever and a perfectionist. Um, and that kind of striving to do better, be, you know, better, um, uh, was, yeah, it was a really comfortable place comparative to home. home. Yeah. Yeah. So did you eventually leave home, you know, in, in, on good terms or were you, did you escape? Oh, look, I escaped, um, but then I, I've escaped every other situation since two. Um, so, you know, I always bring myself into the prison. Um, but I did, I left school, uh, I left school in year 11, um, and I left home, um, at the same time and, uh, moved in with some friends, my boyfriend at the time, and then ended up making my way, um, down to Canberra which was quite a distant, you know, moved into state, yep. did a geographical yeah, at right. 16. Um, How unusual. <laughs> and went back to school and did really well and then went to uni and, yeah. Okay. Um, so, friends, were you close to people? Yeah, I've, I, I have had a lot of great friends over the course of my life. But the one thing I could never figure out was why I inspired such contempt in others sometimes, you know. I think um, the way that I behaved um, in with my peers sometimes inspired um, not-so-friendly friendliness towards me. And re- not, I wouldn't say rejection, but certainly, you know, I think I could be very much, um, you know, the know-it-all, Critical, yeah. Critical, absolutely critical. And, you know, even now um, I find it, you know, I find um, it very easy to be observing and weighing and judging the actions and behaviour of others, Um, which is definitely something that was a very prevalent dynamic in my family home and one of the reasons that I left. I was being constantly criticised and torn apart. Yeah, okay. Um, so back to you, Dean. Um, where are we? So when did when did you discover alcohol, and what what did it do for you? Yeah, so uh, around the age of sort of fifteen and a half, I was. I remember we, I was going to my first sort of uh, proper high school party uh, where there was, you know, uh, a large group of people. There was girls there and. You know, me and my mates were excited. We were feeling, you know, a bit of anxiety. We, are we wearing the right things? What are we going to say to the girls? Yeah, and that's, you know, that's that that doesn't make me alcoholic. I think that's pretty normal for every every yeah. teenager. Yeah, you know what I, mean? I think it's called puberty. Yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> and uh, but I remember 
it just came to the forefront of my mind leading up to that party. I remember seeing older guys around the footy club and they would always have a drink in their hand on the Friday night functions and they'd be talking to everyone and really well liked and cracking jokes and they just have this ease and comfort about them. And I was like, man, if I can get a few beers, I've never had it before, but maybe if I can get a few beers, that seems like the normal thing to do at, at parties and you know, disregarding that the legal age to drink is 18 and, and my parents really didn't want me drinking at 15 and a half, but you know, I'm happy to push that aside because there might be something in it there. Mm. I, and I didn't know, but I had that inkling and I got a, a mate's older brother to, to get some beers and yeah, about two, three beers in. I experienced the effect that makes me physically different from non-alcoholics. I had this experience and it started in my toes and went all the way through my body to the top of my head and it culminated in a, in an understanding that this is the thing. You know, my life was never bad before that point, but this just turned the dial to 11 yeah. and everything was still possible and I know exactly what I'm going to say to her to get her to like me and I'm going to do this and I'm going to crack this joke over there and I just was filled with, and I was already a pretty comfortable and confident kid, but the fear and the anxiety I had, I was I was no longer second-guessing myself about anything. It was just, it was on, and I loved the effect produced by alcohol. And you could control it. Yeah, I think, well, that night, I, yeah, look, uh, the basic textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about a phenomenon of craving that appears in the alcoholic and doesn't appear in the moderate drinker. And it's hard to look back on those early days because I don't know if I was starting to experience the phenomenon of craving or if I was just caught up in the excitement because everyone drank way too much that night. Yeah. But I can, to the best of my knowledge, I'm the only one who turned out to be an alcoholic. So, you know, I, I could control it in the early days, but as it progressed, you know, I got sober at the age of 20 in, in 2014, the 3rd of August is my sobriety date. And, but by the when I was 15 and a half, I don't think I was losing control every single time I drank. Uh, but I was starting to think about that effect more and more often. I remember after my first drink, but as my alcoholism progressed, I started to lose control more often than not. So how did that make you feel when, when you did lose control? Did you, did you see yourself as being different or you weren't too different to everybody else? Yeah, see, that's from that point on, most other experiences I had with alcohol, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't really see myself as different because, yeah, like it, it didn't happen as frequently after that point. We, we still had to, you know, I was still underage. My parents still had their stance on when I should start drinking, which was fair enough. But I was trying to sort of scheme and I was obsessing about, okay, he's going to have a free house next weekend, okay can I talk to Tom's older brother and can he get me some beers? All right. And I'm trying to sort of line it all up. So that obsessive thinking about alcohol was, was starting, but I would, there'd be times around the age of, yeah, 15 and a half, 16, 16 and a half, where I'd sort of be able to have a six pack and stop there or, or put it down. But yeah, when, when, as I got older and things started to progress, people started pulling back from their drinking behavior around the age of 17, 18, they started to knuckle down for school. A lot of my friends, they started yeah. to get, a bit of discipline and structure in their life with their study and I wasn't able to sort of pull up like they could I, I was finding it very difficult I would start craving liquor more to start helping with the fear and anxiety of, of the responsibilities of life that were coming but once I would start drinking I started to experience overshooting the mark more often than not I started to lose control maybe five six 
out of ten times, and and it started to I started to think, man, why why can my friends start to pull up and you know go to work on time, or, or you know they can not drink for a couple of weeks because an exam's coming up, and how come I'm starting to you know get thirstier more often and not be able to control how much I consume? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, back to you, Emily. So, what was the thing that caused you to think that your behaviour was a little bit different? Well, I didn't realise that I'd made it my um, unspoken life ambition to just never be like my mum. Yeah. Um, and uh, oh, it's it, I'm, I'm quite ashamed to say that now. Um, this time last year, my mum and I were jetting off to Paris to spend two weeks together and um, that just could never have been a possibility pre-program, uh, pre-Al-Anon. I, I had so much resentment and contempt for my mother um, and the reason that I realised I was insane is because I started behaving like her and I started to feel... Um, yeah, I just, it was this enormous um, ego crack, I guess. Um, I, I had a nervous breakdown. Um, and it was the manipulative behaviour, the neediness and the clinginess, particularly to the alcoholic in my life at that time, my boyfriend, and the um, the way in which I found myself constantly talking about him, constantly talking about his stuff and what I needed to do and all, the, you know, I just, I just identified all of that with the kind of behaviour that I escaped or tried to escape growing up. And um, I think um, it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Most people think when you know, if you talk about alcohol growing up in an alcoholic situation you escape you're trying to escape the alcoholic but the non-alcoholic parent is often as sick as the alcoholic parent because they've had to put up with this stuff for so long that they're badly affected and they don't realize yeah yeah and i for a really long time you know i i didn't live with my mum i left i lived with my father and his um new partner um they were really um hands-off parents there was never a lot of money around you know dad was always at the pub um but there was an abuse and that was <laughs> that was a good <laughs> yeah. um but I also feel like one of the reasons that my father was able to keep drinking is because while mum was the crazy bitch he didn't have to look at his part in things and I unfortunately i I took on that attitude, you know, it was a really sad, almost a sad day for me when I decided in a conversation with my father that I was no, no longer going to be his ally in this let's blame mum, that, yeah. that person over there, she's the problem, yep. and kind of actually had to put in a boundary around that with him. Um, there's a bit of grief there because that was one of the things, as his alcoholism has progressed... Um, his capacity to have meaningfully intimate relationships with people is less and less. So um, we were really close when I was a kid, and over time, unfortunately, that's, you know, we just don't have much in common anymore. Um, we have a lot in common, but we don't have a way of speaking with each other, and I think that's common in 
in alcoholic relationships. Yeah, yeah, the communication breaks down. Yeah. Okay, awesome. We might take a break. Promo for the show. Uh, there's a show called Behind Closed Doors, Sex Worker's Voice, a uh, safe place to explore the world of sex work. It's on Thursdays, 6 to 6.30. So today, uh, PM on 3CR. Living Free Show's got around 100 episodes of the show available as podcasts, and they're on our website, uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree. So you can check them out. If you want to send us a message uh, or contact us, uh, you can either call the station on 94198377, email us on uh, 3crlivingfree at gmail.com, and we're also available on Twitter as 3crlivingfree. I'm chatting with Emily and Dean, and we're talking about alcoholism and how organisations like Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon Family Groups help recovering alcoholics and their family and friends. Uh, today our focus is the Aussie Park Convention, which will, will be held in Melbourne on Saturday, this Saturday and Sunday, uh, the 7th and 8th of September. More about that later. Um, so, Dean, we're talking about um, when drinking stopped being a total pleasure and started becoming a bit of a burden. So what was, what was life like when you tried to control your drinking? Yeah, yeah so... Um I guess, yeah, like I've been saying, when I started, when I got to the age of about 17 and a half, 18, and people were starting to pull up, and, and you know, a lot of my friends were suiting up and showing up for the responsibilities in their life, like school, work, a lot of them started to have relationships. Um, I felt like I was retracting from all those things. Uh, fear really started to dominate me. Uh, fear of the future, how's it all going to work out? Uh, with my own resources am i going to make am i going to get the success that that i want that that my parents want for me all those sorts of things and and i i found i was starting to drink more and more i was looking forward to the relief that i was starting that i was getting from alcohol more often and starting to really crave that relief just take the edge off and i was losing control more often than not about seven, eight times I was I was losing control over the amount that I take and it went from being, Oh Dan, you know, you you you're such a you know, a loose unit or that's crazy what you did that weekend. We can't believe you kept going for two days, you know. You you're all right, you know, that that was fun and exciting when it started, but when people started to pull up and get serious about things in their lives and and I seemed to be slipping more and more, it wasn't fun or or exciting anymore it started to feel I started to feel really sad you know I remember going to a mate's house on a Friday night and thinking I'm just gonna have we're gonna split a six pack and watch the footy and then I'd be getting home Monday morning thinking well god I why did I miss work again why did I miss that family function on Sunday I said I was gonna be there I I was adamant I was just gonna have four beers and then when that that same similar experience happened you know the next three weeks in a row I was like what's going on and at the age of 18, I came clean to my parents and said, I'm really struggling. And they knew. Like, <laughs> you know, I think it's very common for alcoholics to think that they're sort of keeping their behavior yeah. and conduct <laughs> under wraps. But everyone, <laughs> everyone knew I was, I was having issues. Uh, I was the sort of last one to realize it. <laughs> and, and, they, and they loved me, you know. But if the love of a parent was enough to overcome alcoholism, I would have overcome it at 18. And we tried so many times. And that's when I started to get scared because I was seriously, earnestly trying to control the amount yeah. that I would take, and I had lost the power of control. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't stop. 
I couldn't control how much I'd take when I, when I pick up that, that physical allergy that we talk about in AA would get triggered. I'd be overcome by a phenomenon of craving that I'd have to satisfy against my will. And on the flip side of that, I started to lose the power of choice whether alcohol was going back in or not. I would swear off on days and by the afternoon, for no good reason, a drink would pass me by and I knew I, I shouldn't do it or my parents were begging me not to, but it would go back in. I'd lost that power of choice whether I start again. And that's where it started to get really scary. Yeah. So alcohol didn't reduce your anxiety in the end. It actually increased it. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's another thing, you know, like if alcohol worked like it did at that first party, I probably wouldn't have come into AA. But the problem was it wasn't giving me that same relief. It, it started to stop working. And I started to become obsessed with recapturing that experience that I found when I was when I was younger. If I can just jumpstart the party like that again, yeah. I can I can figure things out. I can you know, at this stage I was having big troubles with you know, financially. You know, I became very unreliable, so it was hard for me to get work. I was you know I was I was being very dishonest. I was I was stealing off my parents uh, to to fund. Um, my drinking and it, it was getting real messy real quick and I, but I would just be overcome by this thought of maybe it's going to be different this time or man I just need to get a couple of drinks and then I can figure it out yeah, and then I'd get that relief and, and I'd be like oh I feel great now cool uh, the plan is still on I'm going to figure this out I'm going to get some money here and pay them back it's all possible and then the phenomenon of craving would take hold and I'd overshoot the mark again yep yeah, yeah. That sounds tragic. Uh, it's uh, a sad cycle, yeah. yeah. So what what did your parents help you do? Yeah, well, you know, we tried lots of things. You know, they, we, we tried, um, first of all, they, they got me into counselling. And I was seeing a counsellor once a week. They, they took my bank cards off me uh, and I gave them permission to do that. Uh, and they gave me sort of an allowance out of my account so I couldn't spend too much. Uh, you know, we tried staying in on the weekends, doing family things on, on Saturday and Sunday. You know, dad would, um, you know, he'd, he'd try and spend a lot of time with me and help me out. You know, it's, they, yeah, like I said, you know, they loved me to death and they tried every, we tried everything we could think of. But the, that's, you know, like we say in AA, the, the problem, the big problem is, you know, if I've got that allergy to alcohol, you know, like anyone else who has an allergy, they just don't take the thing that makes them allergic. My younger cousin has a peanut allergy. He doesn't mm. eat peanuts. That's yeah. fine with it. He can live with yeah. that. Yeah. You know, I knew it was a bad idea to drink because all the evidence was piling up. It's saying me and alcohol don't mix. And I acknowledged that at 18 when I started coming to my parents for help. And we all knew it was general consensus within the family home. Dean shouldn't drink alcohol. Yep. But this mental obsession that the book talks about, I have this this mental blank spot. It doesn't matter how strong my willpower is in other regards of my life, but when it comes to alcohol, I just it, it goes back in. I have a mind that will convince me it's okay at some point to take a drink. I had no mental defense against that first drink, mm-hmm. and we didn't know that that was alcoholism and that it's it 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 takes more to overcome that than yeah the love of your family, the, the all the things we tried. It culminated in a detox. At the age of 20, that was the sort of the last ditch effort we had because we didn't know what else to do. We tried everything. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We'll get back to that. So Emily um, moved out with friends, relationship 
you said you carried the same behaviours with you. So how did that pan out in your relationship? Well, I had lots of relationships with people who had um, substance. They were substance curious. Let's put it that way. Um, it only in reflection. Actually, I did a. I recently called an ex-boyfriend. Um, see how he's going. It's like, oh mate, can't stop going to the pub. I'm like, oh, stacks up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I would often um, have these beautiful, loving relationships, and then um, you know, be a bit black and white. Expect too much from the relationship. Expect too much from my partner. Um, expect the relationship to provide the life that I wanted for myself. That I think that was a really a big thing. Certainly in um, in my marriage, I really expected um, and demanded that my husband was there to um, give me uh, comfort, but also you know that his career would be the one that made me feel like we were getting somewhere, and it was his yep. <laughs> stuff that um, would ultimately be my vehicle um and uh that sort of codependency and enmeshment um you know I witnessed that with my mum she couldn't be happy because dad wasn't making her happy by coming home at appropriate time and um I think um looking for another person to essentially be the agenda setter in some ways for my life until such time it was evident that they had failed or the thrill was gone or you know, it was their fault, and then I would just end the relationship and leave. And, yeah. Move to the next. Next, <laughs> exactly. And then find myself there again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, so what caused you to start looking at yourself? Well, I, um, I had an extramarital affair with an alcoholic. Um, it was very clear that he was an alcoholic. He was also having major depressive episodes and... Um, I was at this time, um, I was married to somebody who was really stable, really loving, very, very um, willing to do anything to make me happy. Like my happiness was his guiding um, concern in life. We had two young children. My um, youngest was just two years old. And um, I knew I had a problem when I chucked it all away for an alcoholic eight years my junior. Yeah. Yeah. That that was that was that was sort of the the indication. Right. That um but I was in so much pain, you know, everything that I'd cared about no longer made sense to me. You know, I, I, I had a really difficult breakdown. I turned into mum. That was horrifying. Um and then I found myself unable to extract myself from this relationship. I kept putting in hard boundaries like if you don't stop drinking then I will leave and then I would leave and two weeks later make the teary phone call forgive me please I miss you (laughs) it was really hard um so that back and forth happened for a while and then I was you know constantly going to mates and um doing the I've got the problem of the boyfriend who won't drink let's think about all the ways we can change him so that I can be happy um you know, and it seemed really reasonable. You know, we need to get him into counselling. We need him to do these things. And, um, you know, if he could just uh, stop drinking or we could, you know, he needs to change his attitude and all of these things. Um, I'd always 
talk to friends about it, like the broken record really wore them thin, but one of my friends, thank Christ, had been in Al-Anon. And she was actually my deepest comfort because I'd go over there with my sob stories and she'd just, I didn't know it at the time, she'd just quote AA slogans at me. Mm. One day at a time. Yeah. So I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain that I, you know, a lot of us crawl into Al-Anon on our hands and knees and that was me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So back to you then, Dean. Um, so you went to detox. So... How did that help? Yeah, um, I mean, it's pretty hard to to drink when you're at a detox. Yeah, um, you know, it's not encouraged. It's been done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was good. It was a nice break from the chaos of my life. You know, the six months leading up to detox was the f- was the worst six months I've probably experienced in my life so far, and hopefully is the worst I'll experience ever because <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it was brutal. You know, I. And it was weird, like, there were some external things in my life that were going all right, you know. I sort of botched up high school, but I was able to sort of do a year 13 program and get into graphic design at RMIT. And I'd just been accepted, and I got through my first semester. And that first semester was sort of the point leading up to my detox. So everyone went on mid-semester break, and they go, what are you doing on the break then? And I'm going, I'm going to detox, you know. <laughs> just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way up in life, you know. And uh, obviously I didn't say it to them because I was, you know, in a lot of self-pity and embarrassment and, and my life, you know, the wheels were coming off at this stage because I knew it was not a good idea to drink. The party was over. I couldn't get that, that same feeling that I used to get and I was desperately trying to recapture that. And I would, I would get to a stage where I could not drink anymore and then I'd be sober for a while, and I'd be restless, irritable, and discontent. And I'd feel like, God, I if I die, drink. if I yeah. keep drinking, I'm going to die. And then I'd get to a stage where if, if I don't drink, I'm going to die. I couldn't, I couldn't live with it or without it. Mm. And it was bad. So I got to this detox, and it's I couldn't separate myself from alcohol. So detox was really great for separating me from alcohol. But I'm a great, I'm a great quitter. I can quit drinking. No worries. Easy. Uh, so easy to do. Every day, yeah. But... Staying, staying stopped. Then that's where I, that's when I run into a bit of trouble. And and when I got out of detox, I had every intention to stay sober. But I, I picked up the day I got out. I came home. All my family were home. They're they're ready to support me uh, in my new life. I've you know put this stuff behind us. I had uncles, aunties, parents, grandparents, my sisters. You know, God bless them. And I said, great. I went to catch up with some old friends the same day. I had a drink. The phenomenon of craving kicked in. Came back a week later, all my stuff was packed. And my dad said, I, I love you, but I'm trying to raise a family here and we just can't do this anymore. Uh, you're going to have to figure things out then, you know. And uh, I had the same clothes I wore when I got discharged from uh, from detox because, you know, I'm, I'm a really organized sort of guy. And uh, I had the pamphlet of AA that the counselor gave me as I was leaving. He goes, you might want to check out these meetings. I said, yeah, no worries, man. I'm fine now. I've done detox for two weeks. And lo and behold, I pulled out that meetings book and I said, Dad, please, whatever you do, let's just go to these meetings. My dad took me to my first meeting and I uh, said, let's just see how it goes. We haven't tried this yet. And thank God he did. You know, I just I just wanted the heat to die down and save face with the parents. But I heard the message of recovery uh, at my first meeting and the meetings that I went to after that. And uh, it's changed the course of my life. Okay, that's good. Listen, we'll take another quick break. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR. 
uh, digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Um, we're here with Emily and Dean, and we're talking about alcoholism, and we're also talking about um, uh, an AA convention, uh, which is called Aussie Par uh, 2019, which will be on this weekend on the 7th and 8th of September at the Jasper Hotel, 489 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. Uh, doors open 9.30 each day. Uh, they've got an international guest speaker, Ruben from California. Um, so there's workshops and step meetings, um, and it's an, it's an Alcoholics Anonymous event with Al-Anon participation. Uh, tickets are $50 and can be purchased at the venue or online at vikipar, which is V-I-C-Y-P-A-A dot org. Um, so Emily and Dean, let's talk about what Aussie Par is. Uh, you can probably talk about Vicky Parr as well because it's a, you know, it's a Victorian rather than Australian event. Um, but Dean, do you want to start off with what you've been on the committee uh, of Aussie Parr uh, to organise it? Um, so do you want to talk about why it's there and how you're involved and how it helps? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess to start, so Vicky Parr is the committee that is hosting Aussie Par this year. Yep. And what Vicky Par stands for is a Victorian Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what the YPA stands for, Y-P-A-A. So YPAs were started in the States. And funny enough, they're Ruben. It's, 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 it's great that he's coming down as the guest speaker this year because Ruben was 19 years old in uh in the states when a member from from melbourne mark J, went over and he met ruben mark was uh was about two years sober at the time ruben was three years sober this is this is back in the 80s and uh and ruben met up with you know they met and he was just really involved in alcoholics anonymous he was really involved in his recovery life was taken off for him and he was involved in this thing called Ikipa, which was the International YPA Convention. And Mark saw that and thought it was so incredible. There was nothing like it in Australia, within AA community in Australia. And Mark came and uh, got, a, got a committee together and they put on the first Vicky Parr Convention in 1995. Wow. And, you know, I was born in 1994. So this was all happening. They were all getting it ready for me to join. <laughs> Uh, you know, 24 years down the track. But um, what is incredible is, uh, yeah, I I got sober, as I said, on the 3rd of August 2014, and, and service is a big part of my recovery. You know, contributing to the fellowship that has saved my life is something I love doing. And, you know, but yeah, when I came in, I was not a very reliable person. I really struggled with commitment and suiting up and showing up with responsibilities. But this was a great space to start to learn that. And then once I got involved and contributed what I could to the table, it really helped with my self-esteem and, and just, yeah, a bit of self-worth, you know, and I got to learn those skills of working working in a team and putting on something like this convention. And, yeah, it's for, for those who, who haven't attended a convention like this before, it is incredible. The excitement that, that you will find this weekend at Aussie Bar is amazing. Just a bunch of people... In Melbourne, getting together, celebrating their sobriety, or if you're in Al-Anon, you know, celebrating, you know, growth and and through their program, uh, it's it's just it's just an awesome thing to be a part of. If you don't know much about you know the twelve steps of recovery or a bunch of recovery related topics, we got workshops and step workshops all day long, 
Ruben will be speaking at 7pm on the Saturday night as the main guest chair. Mark J, who started uh, Vicky Pays, we've also got him back to run a workshop with Ruben as well about the importance of a home group in recovery. It's it's all happening, you know. If, if you go to vickypar.org, you can find the program with all the times when the speakers are. There's a link to buy tickets or come down to the Jasper Hotel at the top of Elizabeth Street. Registration is open at 9.30 a.m. and you can buy a ticket on the door. And if, you, if anyone out there is listening that's struggling and you're, you're struggling financially, we've got you covered. You know, we get a lot of tickets donated at the door thing. You know, from, from a lot of members that are, are doing quite well as a result of recovery. So we can, you know, if you're really struggling with um, with, with money, don't don't worry about it. Just come, get involved. You know, we're, we're, we put this on because it's our primary purpose to carry the message to the still sick and suffering alcoholic. You know, this is what it's all about. So, yeah, please come down. You know, if you're a family member who's struggling with someone, you know, if you know an alcoholic and you're struggling with that, come down as well if you want to learn a bit more about you know, the nature of alcoholism or, or check out Al-Anon. And I think Emily can, can talk a bit more about that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely come so, down. So, Emily, you've been involved with the commi- Vicky Park Committee before and yeah. now you're on this one. Yeah, so um, I came into Al-Anon and I was like maybe three months in and <laughs> they um, were reading out in the group news that they needed someone to do this, young persons and young people and alcoholic and Alcoholics Anonymous um, convention liaison position, and um, you foolishly. <laughs> no, no, you know what? It's the only. It, I felt called to service. I thought I can do that. I don't know why or why what it was, but I I was called to service and I put my hand up for it. Six months into program, yeah. Um, which was amazing because that service position um, sits within like the Victorian. In terms of the service structure of Al-Anon, it put me right in the centre of recovery. Yeah. So suddenly I was, you know, knew all these amazing people who were in in service in Al-Anon with heaps and heaps of program. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. But then I also found myself in these committee meetings with alcoholics <laughs> that looked very much like the one that I was struggling with at home. Yeah. Young men trying to get sober and women, but... Um, yeah, so it was it was an amazing um, thing to 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 be given a great gift to be given very early on in in my Al-Anon recovery, and um, the first convention I went to, uh, I was involved with. Um, the guest speaker was a woman called Carmel, and um, there was like it it was so moving. Like I was sitting next to a guy who was only. He was only just sober. I think he had maybe three months up. Um, and he was just... We were both just openly weeping together. <laughs> and <laughs> and there, it was just one of those incredibly moving experiences. I'd just been to like literally like seven or eight Al-Anon meetings in a row over the course of the convention. But after the convention, I, I felt the need to I'd go to another meeting to talk about the convention <laughs> meetings because they were so powerful. Mm. Okay. Um, you mentioned young women. I, I think that was the thing that surprised me going to Vicky Park was seeing the number of young women in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And is that a big change recently? Yeah, I think, you know, thankfully... Yeah, Alcoholics Anonymous was started in the late 30s. And since then, you know... It, 
with with the with the book and the twelve steps, it's really raised the bottom. You know, I don't think I didn't. I don't need to be a low bottom drunk uh, in my forties and fifties. Yeah. Um, in order to to identify as an alcoholic and and get recovery. You know what I mean? I, I'm so grateful I can do that at 20 years old. And I've seen, you know, there's there's a lot of... I'm friends with a lot of guys and they're part of the Vicky Park committee and they go to my home group as well and a lot of women in the fellowship too that are quite young. And, uh, yeah, we're, there's a lot of us in our in our mid to late 20s, some some as old as 19 as well. There's one of Ruben's sponsees came with him from California. He's, he'll be talking at the convention. He's only 19 years old. You know, it's... it's I take a lot of responsibility to to be a good example that you don't have to be old and low bottom to to come in and get sober you know like yeah. you, you can get off the train at an earlier stop, stop so to speak it doesn't have to go right to the last station yeah um, and it's i'm so glad i got sober at the age of 20 and got involved with things like vicky bar and of course the 12 steps which is what we offer in aa that is what brings about this recovery yeah. And so why why do alcoholics study the 12 steps at things like yeah. Vicky Aussie Park? Yeah, well I mean so Alcoholics Anonymous took its name from our basic text the book. That's back in the day there were no meetings, there were no sponsors. It was a very small group of people and they had a book and they said if you know this book used to be mail order and when they got it you know, usually a wife would hear about it who had an alcoholic husband or a husband would hear about his, you know, would have an alcoholic wife and they'd hear about this book in the newspapers and they'd go, wow, it stops people from drinking. And they'd, and they'd mail it in and they had to make sure that all the instructions in this book, if it could be followed, it would remove the obsession to drink, that thing that would take me back even against my own will yep. and make the sufferer happily and usefully whole. Twelve steps that are spiritual in nature. And, uh, and, that's what started happening. And then our book suggests that we go and carry this message and try help other alcoholics. And that's how meetings started. Men would get this book and women. They would go through the process. They would recover from alcoholism. That obsession would get removed as a result of taking the actions in the book. And then the book, you know, in Chapter 7, working with others, it says, great, go out to your local hospitals. You talk to your local priests. They will know people in the community because there were no meetings back then. They were rarely detoxes. But that's how it started. They started to carry this message. Other people would go through the process. They'd meet once a week. It grew. Fast forward, you know, 80 years, and I'm rocking up to my first meeting, and thank God it grew and was established and made it all the way out to Australia. And that's why we study it, to continue to carry. I need to get better and more of an understanding of this stuff so I can pass on what's been freely given to me because it's saved my life. Yeah, which is great. Mm. I... I, I, we tend to do topic meetings in the Al-Anon rooms. Like, um, so, for example, this coming weekend, um, one of the the topics that we'll be discussing, and you'll hear a lot of people sharing their experience on, is um, the subject of detachment. Don't even think about changing him is yeah. or her is the name <laughs> of the session. Um, other kinds of tools that we have um, to help us in recovery, and in my own experiences, was that um, the slogans of the program, they were the thing that really I was able to anchor onto in the, in the early days of my recovery, particularly when you're recovering as an Al-Anon, because, you know, the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our life had become unmanageable. Well, I was really willing to admit that my life had become unmanageable. But what did it mean that I was powerless over alcohol? 
Um, so, you know, the slogans, um, keep it simple is one of the slogans. I mean, they're really, they're really kind of cliche yeah. and basic, but they've yeah. become so important um, to me in my recovery. And last year I went to um, the Step 4 meeting. So the, the AA has run step workshops the whole weekend. Um, and if you want to get a deep, deeper understanding about the steps, sitting in on those meetings is amazing. I stepped, sat in on step four and step 11. And um, step four was, for me, I, I believe, you know, it was a really divine intervention that put me in that room because I'd been really struggling to do my own inventory. And then the step four workshop was literally take out your book, roll, rule a margin at the top of the column, write this. And I really needed that. I needed to be taken through a step four workshop. Um, and then, you know, if you are keen to hear from people with really deep recovery and a lot of experience in the program, um, you'll hear them both in the AA rooms, but then and also in the Al-Anon rooms where you might hear from um, – one of our amazing older older members who maybe with 40 years of um, alcohol, uh, on, who went through the program when it wasn't okay to leave a bad marriage. It wasn't no, There was no domestic violence support for women fleeing from violent alcoholic situations. They had Al-Anon and Al-Anon helped them cope. And they have all of that wisdom from those situations and they are happy, joyous and free. And that's that's incredible. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, listen, we are just about time to wrap up. Um, so if you'd like to find out more about Alan Family Groups, uh, you can find them on 1300 252 666 or go online at alan.org.au. And as Dean said, if you want to find out a bit more about Aussie Parr, you can go to Vicky Parr which is V-I-C-Y-P-A-A dot org, um, and that, they'll have all the details there. Uh, that's about all we've got time for, so I'd like to thank Emily and Dean for coming in today and sharing their recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you're about to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction. We'll be joined by John and Brendan from Gamblers Anonymous. Black Noise Radio is not live today, but we have a pre-record, which I'll put on in just a minute. Um, so thanks again.